Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. Ten by Nine is back with full houses at our home venue, the Black Box in Belfast, where we started it all in 2011. Our February event was a collaboration with the Northern Ireland Science Festival, and the theme was Discovery. There are three wonderful stories from that evening on this podcast for you. The pattern was a plate. Now, not a Delft plate, not even a good china plate. Oh, no, this is the Catholic Church we're talking about. My classmates opted for an age-appropriate costume. I walked into school that morning with a bonnet, a woven basket, and my best impersonation. The biggest design flaw of having your reproductive organs on the outside of your body is that they invariably get in the way and require frequent minor adjustments when sitting, standing, walking, or generally moving around. So get ready for shenanigans with the altar boys, pride, prejudice, and pansexuality, as well as a bollocks story that might save a life. Okay, let's get started. And first up is that little ball of energy that is Barney Gribben. I thought long and hard before deciding to tell this story tonight because if there's any Catholics in the room this evening, they might be a bit annoyed with me. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) jeez. If there's any devout Catholics in the room, they could be very cross with me. And if there's any devout Catholics from Timbridge, when they discover what has happened, they'll be looking at me locked up. I can see all the Protestants rubbing their hands with glee. (laughs) When I was 10 years of age, there was a new chapel built in Tunbridge, and there was an appeal put out for boys to volunteer to become altar boys. My father very kindly volunteered myself and my brother Mark. (laughs) It was very nice of him. (laughs) Now, full disclosure here, I detested going to Mass, even at that young age. It was so boring. It was the same thing every week. Uh, The only difference was the preaching and the gospel. But apart from that, everything else was the same. I compared it to having to sit and watch the same episode of Coronation Street every week, only the ads were different. (laughs) Don't get me started on the rosary. (laughs) But I was going to be made go to Mass anyway, so being an altar boy might alleviate some of the boredom. There was 12 altar boys in total, and there was four allocated for every Mass. Um, One person could have done all the jobs, but they allocated four because it looked better, and uh, if some of them didn't turn up, at least there was going to be cover. <laughs> there was four different jobs. The first job was the red book. It was the book of the Gospels. You brought it onto the altar at the start of Mass. You took it off the altar at the end of Mass. That was it. Nothing to do during the Mass. Nobody liked that job. <laughs> the next job was ringing the bell, and there were three times during the Mass where you had to ring the bell, and depending if there was any divilment in you that day or not as to what way you rang the bell. Sometimes it could have been ding-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling or ding-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling, ding-a-ling, ding. That last ding could have gotten you a very stern look from the priest, I can tell you. The next job then was water and wine and there was two occasions during the Mass where you got to get on your feet and take the water and wine up to the altar. Our uniform as altar boys was a surplus and satan. The satan was a full-length black robe, and the surplice was a white bib that you pulled on over the top. My brother Mark took his surplice and satan home one time to get washed, and the following Sunday he forgot to bring it with him. So he borrowed one out of the store. But the one he borrowed was a foot longer than he was. (laughs) 
His duties that day was the water and wine. Oh, yes. And as he's walking across the altar with the tray of water and wine, he stood in the satan and like a drinking ducky just went straight over. <laughs> water and wine everywhere. Father Murray was the priest in charge. He was a very mild-mannered man, and he helped Mark onto his feet, and he gave me the nod to go down into the sacristy and get a refill of the water and wine. But that little, little incident of Mark's made him headline news in the village for the next week. <laughs> now, the next job was the pattern. And for any Protestants that are in tonight, and in fact, maybe for a few Catholics as well, the pattern was a plate. Now, not a delf plate, not even a good china plate. Oh, no, this is the Catholic Church we're talking about. <laughs> A pattern is either solid gold or gold-plated. It's a holy item, and it's used for catching communion. So when it comes to communion time at Mass, the congregation come up to the altar. The priest would come they would, uh, to each person individually. He takes a piece of communion. He says, body of Christ. They say, amen, put their tongue out, and he places the communion onto their tongue. All the while, the altar boy is holding the pattern underneath their chin. If the communion happens to fall, it lands on the pattern. Because the pattern is a holy item, it's the communion still classed as sacred. The priest would lift it off the pattern and place it back on the person's tongue. But God forbid if the communion touched the altar boy's thumb. The communion is no longer sacred and it has to be disposed of. All the altar boys love that job. Especially if some of your friends come up for communion. The priest would say, body of Christ. And before they could say amen, you push the pattern into the throat. And it was... <laughs> Now, the layout of the altar in Tomb Chapel, there was the main altar where the priest stood facing the congregation, and then there was an area behind him, and then a step down, and that's where the altar boy stayed. We were behind the priest. And we were under instructions that when we were kneeling, we had to have the palms of our hands together, your thumbs were crossed over at the back, the tips of your fingers were in line with your lips, and your elbows were in. None of this clasped fingers and hands against your chest. Not that nonsense. No, no, we did it the proper way. We were like wee angels up there in the altar. And just to remind you, the age range of the altar boys was from 7 to 10. And for children of that age, one of the funniest things that could ever happen, and especially at Mass, is when somebody would fart. <laughs> the hands went up, the heads went down, and the shoulders started shaking in uncontrollable silent laughter. <laughs> and when you lifted your head up, you could see the first two or three rows of the congregation had their heads down as well. Now, this activity was going on behind the priest. He didn't know what was happening. He must have been looking at the audience and think, boys, dear, they're praying very hard this week. <laughs> now, with any new building, it's open for a few weeks, and then they have the official opening ceremony. And it was the same with the church. At the back door of the church, there was a, an outside water tap. There was a plaque above the tap, and it said, Holy Water. The priest had warned the congregation, don't be taking this water home with you. This is just ordinary water. It won't be holy water until after it has been blessed. The day of the blessing ceremony arrived, and myself and Mark were allocated as the two altar boys to help Father Murray. So the priest is standing in front of the tap. Mark is standing just in front of him to the left, holding the prayer book for the priest to read from, and I'm standing just to the right with the aspersory and the aspigulum. Now, in layman's terms, the aspersory was a silver container that held holy water. The aspigulum was a handle with a ball on the end of it. The ball was hollow and perforated. We called it the bucket and ball. And what would happen is the priest would dip the ball into the bucket and he would bless holy water over whatever item was being blessed. So Father Murray's reading the prayer book that Mark's holding. He reaches my direction, takes the ball out of the bucket, and he blesses the tap with nothing. I'd forgotten to put holy water into the bucket. 
He reads more of the prayer, dips the ball into the bucket again, and for a second time, he proceeds to not bless this tap. <laughs> now, I can't say anything. I'm going to get into a whole heap of trouble. But I'm the only one who knows that this tap has not been blessed. <laughs> and the water coming out of it is just ordinary water. The service finishes and people are gathering around the priest and thanking him for a lovely service and isn't it a beautiful day, weren't we so lucky? And I'm standing there holding this bucket with my arm over the top of it, hiding the fact that there's no water in the thing. <laughs> and there's a queue of people with empty bottles ready to get ordinary water out of this holy water tap to bring home with them. <laughs> One of those bottles ended up back in our house. And my father went around every room and he sprinkled water in every room of the house. And this was going to protect the house from ever going on fire. Our house never went on fire. <laughs> I can only assume that ordinary water is every bit as good as holy water. <laughs> now, nobody ever discovered that that tap was never blessed. And I kept the story to myself for a good few years until tonight. <laughs> now, I just want... <laughs> If there's any devout Catholics from Tomb that are in here tonight, I want to put you at ease. And with all the laughter, I think I'm the only bloody Catholic that's here. <laughs> but I put you at ease. About 15 years ago, there was a renovation done in Tomb Chapel. The water tap was moved, and a new blessing ceremony took place. So if you're ever going through Tomb and you call in for some holy water, today you'll be getting the real thing. Ah, Barney, thanks so much. I'm sure you were the picture of holiness in your surplice and satan. As a former altar boy myself, I can verify what a rich vein of stories lies there. And if you think you can follow in Barney's storytelling footsteps, then get in touch at 10by9.com or contact us through our social media channels, the usual, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. OK, on to our next story, and it's from a first-timer. Say a very polite hello to Darcy Youngman, who starts off her story impersonating her mum's strong North of England accent. Take it away, Darcy. Who knows? You might meet an Irish lad over there. Let's go back and contextualise. On the 14th of November, 1998, in a little town in Manchester called Oldham. Wait, maybe not that far back. Hi, my name is Darcy Elizabeth Youngman. Now, for you literary fans out there, specifically Jane Austen supporters, my name might seem vaguely familiar. You see, the story behind my name begins it all. In 1995, the BBC produced an adaptation of one of Jane Austen's most beloved novels, Pride and Prejudice. This six-part drama starred a brooding, sideburn-wearing Colin Firth and a powerful Jennifer Ely, performing a very highly convincing English accent. My mother was obsessed, completely enamoured by the world of Longbourn and Pemberley. So much so that three years down the line, upon the birth of her first child, she named them both after Mr Darcy and Elizabeth. It was her NO2 Pride and Prejudice. For me, it was a compelling story to tell, and a highly ironic coincidence that now I study creative writing here in Belfast. Soon her obsession with Georgian high society rubbed off on me and I was taken with the romance myself. At eight years old, for World Book Day, my school told us to dress up as our favourite characters. My classmates opted for an age-appropriate costume. Superheroes, princesses. Oh no, not me. 
I walked into school that morning with a bonnet, a woven basket, and my best impersonation. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a great fortune must be in want of a wife. I was a strange child. <laughs> As I grew older, my fascination crescendoed. Every summer, I would watch the BBC produce Pride and Prejudice, but over time, it became something of a comfort program for me. While my classmates were in fields drinking WKD and peach snaps, I was drinking tea with my pinky extended. My friends excitedly screamed for One Direction, and I find myself blushing at the King's speech. You would think at this time my mother would set up some kind of intervention. Well, surprisingly, or not surprisingly, she bloody loved it. She started buying me Mr. Darcy merch, telling my relatives how boys just didn't interest me. Ah, Darcy's got a crush on Colin Firth. Indeed, I did. I still do. That lake scene, that dripping wet t-shirt. But what my mother failed to recognise, and what I discovered, was not only did I have a crush on Mr. Darcy, but I also had a crush on Elizabeth too. My namesake became my sexual awakening. I was attracted to a person of the same sex. Now, everybody's journey to discovering their sexuality is different. Some people reject it, some embrace it. I decided the only way to get a definite answer was to Google it. <laughs> I Googled the question and got a flood of responses. The only one I was kind of interested in was the are you gay test. I answered the questions, things like, do you feel an attraction towards Gillian Anderson? <laughs> Have you watched, but I'm a cheerleader? Are you into astrology? Oh, yeah. Congratulations, you are gay, confirmed. <laughs> the next step was finding the label. Now, uh, there are many letters in LGBTQ+. I settled on pansexuality. Now, pansexuality is defined as a sexual, romantic, or emotional attraction towards people regardless of their sex and or gender. So in simpler terms, I like everyone, but hate everyone at the same time. <laughs> I vividly remember the excruciating coming out conversation with my mum. I was in my first year of university and we were driving back to my accommodation. I told her straight, it's, it's the straightest I've ever been. <laughs> Mum, I'm pansexual. I said it confidently. I then proceeded to explain what pansexually was to her as she thought it was an attraction to pans. <laughs> Frying pans. Her response was, don't you think it's a phase? A subtle yet gut-wrenching reaction. I replied with a, God, Mum, I wish it was a phase. I hate the fact that I'm still attracted to men. <laughs> now, she did not find this funny. <laughs> not one bit. Instead, she wallowed that she had raised a man-hating feminist and now pansexual daughter. At least I wasn't vegan. <laughs> she blamed my great-grandmother's genetics. Apparently, you inherit the desire to want equality. Suddenly, it all became ironic. She had indoctrinated me into an Elizabeth Bennett mindset of my courage always rises with every attempt to intimidate me. 
Yet in my courage rising, my big pan awakening was reduced to a sizzling shit show. We had to work on it. It was my turn to introduce my mum to my obsession, RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> All it took was one episode, one episode to hook her into the world of drag queens, silly comedy, and tucking. <laughs> she complained at first, but soon she was invested. I'd see her sneakily watching it downstairs when she didn't know I was in. I guess indoctrinating people runs in the family. Maybe another gene we've inherited. But back to the beginning. You might meet an Irish lad. We were at a family gathering when this came out. My grandmother and my mum were talking about the big move to Belfast. My mum said this so everyone could hear. A lad. I knew she was embarrassed. She didn't want the family to know. To put herself into the frying pan. When we got home, I confronted her. I thought we'd had progressed from it being a phase. I thought RuPaul had taught her something. She didn't say the, see the issue with saying lad. And some people here might not either. For me, however, he puts up this pretense of straightness, forcing me to hide a part of my identity that I never felt any shame towards. But I felt her shame. I felt her prejudice. And I felt her pride. That night, I rewatched Pride and Prejudice. I watched Elizabeth Bennett stand up against Mr. Darcy. Her courage, her strength, her stubbornness. I therefore stood my ground. I am pansexual. I am a feminist. I am outspoken and loud. I have an opinion. I am my mother's daughter. I am Darcy Elizabeth. Yesterday, I got a call from my mum and we ended up on the topic of relationships. Who knows, you might meet a great person, Darcy. <laughs> One that will watch re and re-watch Pride and Prejudice with you. I already found that person, and that person is the woman who gave me my name. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Darcy. That series of Pride and Prejudice, by the way, was broadcast in 1995 which makes me feel very old indeed. Thanks for that, Darcy. But what a great story, and please come back soon. Remember, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be, but if you want to help us cover some of our costs, then you can help us out via Patreon or PayPal. But as always, it's more important to us that you sit back, relax, and enjoy. Okay, on to our third and final story this week, and it's from a 10 by 9 regular and audience favourite. It's very male-bodied, but you never know, it could save a life someday. Here's Paul Brady. I tell the following humiliating story because if you're a man, or you just happen to know any men, the discovery involved may just save a life. I show you a trick for that, said the tiny Chinese woman as she let go of my testicles. <laughs> and went charging across the room. She started rummaging through drawers and cupboards along one wall, searching on every shelf and in every corner. Where is it? Where is it, she said, getting ever more frustrated. You men, you wait and you wait until it's too late, and then all you have to do is a basic check. You can do it at home. Male ego has a lot to answer for. I wasn't sure whether she needed or even wanted me to speak on behalf of all men, but standing there in my socks with my bare arse hanging out the back of a hospital gown, 
I felt the need to say something to appease her a wee bit. I took a short breath, and with my head bowed, I made my quickly prepared speech on behalf of all mankind. <laughs> I know, doctor, I said. Men are dicks. <laughs> there was a small window of time in the late 90s when both the Duchess and I used to have the absolute joy of a Saturday morning off with nothing to do and nowhere to go. The Duchess was decades away from realising her dream of owning her own lovely little shop that opened on a Saturday. This meant that I was also decades away from seemingly realising my own dream of being unpaid monkey labour in my wife's lovely little shop <laughs> every Friday and Saturday in life. Our kids were still too young to be going to any sort of ill-advised sport or dancing or martial arts nonsense. So the Duchess would get a little bit of a lie-in, and the kids and I would have a relaxed breakfast and watch cartoons. It was on one of these idyllic, lazy Saturday mornings that I noticed that something was slightly off. I settled the kids as usual, lifted my book, and Commando rolled onto the settee with a certain sense of self-satisfaction. It was then that I felt a slight twang in the crotch region. As all men here will know, the biggest design flaw of having your reproductive organs on the outside of your body is that they invariably get in the way and require frequent minor adjustments when sitting, standing, walking, or generally moving around. If you're transitioning from standing to lying down via commando roll, for instance, then it wouldn't be uncommon to get a warning twang to remind you that things may need adjusting to avoid any further unpleasantness. Genitals, it seems, much like cornflakes, can undergo some settling during transportation. <laughs> now, it may seem like a strange thing, but this process of adjustment and rearrangement has absolutely nothing involved in it of a seedy or lascivious nature. To paraphrase comic genius Billy Conley, you check your willy like you check your change. <laughs> your phone, your car keys, or your wallet it's a practical and functional check to make sure you have everything with you. <laughs> and it's all where it's supposed to be. In the case of a painful twang, it's customary to check specifics and to do a quick head count. <laughs> Once again, there's nothing untoward going on here. With the standard issue, meeting two veg, male genitalia, it's a quick geographical check that things are arranged north to south as they should be and a further very quick mathematical count to three. <laughs> On this particular Saturday morning, post-twang checks were carried out as recommended. Geographical check first, north above south, everything where it should be, yep. Mathematical check next, a simple count from one to three. One, two, three, four. Wait a minute, four? There was extra veg in the bagging area. <laughs> That can't be good, I thought. I rechecked a few more times to make sure that I wasn't wrong, or had maybe counted something twice by mistake. <laughs> there was definitely extra veg that didn't come in the original packaging, and I had no logical explanation as to why it got there. I contacted the doctor first thing on Monday to get it investigated, then sat worrying myself sick through the longest three weeks of my life while I waited on a hospital appointment.
Three weeks later, I found myself in a hospital cubicle, sitting on a freezing cold plastic chair, a paper towel separating my skin from the seat. I weighed up the pros and cons of the situation I found myself in. Con. I could die. <laughs> Con. Even worse. I could have my testicles removed. <laughs> Pro. I had actually discovered the thing very early. Pro. My underwear would be much more snug than it usually is. <laughs> Con. Surgical gowns are the worst design of any garment ever made. They never go all the way around. There's always a gap through which your flesh hangs out. As a large frame gentleman, the exposure of your entire rear end to a freezing plastic chair is inevitable. Years beforehand, my brother had assumed that they would need to look at the area around his grumbling appendix, so he helpfully gowned up with the gap to the front. <laughs> before striding into the apart treatment area like Michelangelo's David in a house coat. <laughs> the curtain was pulled partially back and the tiniest woman I have ever seen entered with bluster. I stood up. She was just over waist height to me. Mr. Brady, she said with a heavy Chinese accent, you have problem in genital area? Well, I've never had any complaints. <laughs> Her little elfin face just stirred up at me quizzically. This is serious business, Mr. Brady. You show me genitals, please. <laughs> Straight to it then. Okay, I said. I thought maybe a late supper first, maybe some dancing. <laughs> Her little elfin face stirred up at me again, less quizzical and more irritated this time. Sorry, doctor, I said sheepishly. A joke when I'm nervous. She lifted my gown and handed me the hem and took my testicles in both hands. When I'm nervous and also when a stranger has me by the nuts, <laughs> I continued squeakily. Hmm, she said. Testicular cyst. Very common. Is that good or bad, I said. Could be either, she said. Well, is there a way to tell one from the other? I asked very quietly and politely. This was no time to make her jump. <laughs> I show you trick for that, she said. And off she went rummaging through the cupboards and berating men as she went. After a few minutes, there was a muffled, aha, from inside one of the cupboards. And she appeared again with what I would describe as a workman's torch. You've probably once seen one on TV or maybe have one in the house. My da had one. He kept it in the boot of the car. It had a handle and a large, powerful circular light. She pulled a small table over in front of me, set the torch on it, pointing straight up at the ceiling and switched it on. I looked up to the ceiling at the circle of light. I looked back down at her, waiting for further instruction. She pointed at my crotch and said, You stretch over light. I pointed at my crotch. Stretch my... Stretch me over the light? Yes, she said. I stood on my tiptoes and did my best to follow the instructions and lowered and stretched myself across the bulb of the torch. Like this, I said awkwardly. Yes, she said. I looked up at the world's worst projector show on the ceiling. <laughs> I couldn't really see anything very clearly. 
Why you look up, she said. Look down at late. Oh, I said. Okay. I looked down at my unwanted addition, and it was backlit against the strong torchlight. Slightly oval in shape, it was perfectly transparent. I thought it looked like a bar of pear soap, or one of those little rubber capsules of petrol that you get to refill a Zippo later. Good, she said. You see it's clear? That means all good. You have no pain? No pain, I said. Good, she said. You check regularly with light at home. If there's pain or if the cyst is not clear, you come straight back, okay? Not clear is bad. Must come straight away. Much catch early. You men always comes too late. Stupid ego. <laughs> yes, doctor, I said. I smiled at her tiny little finger wagging up at me. Oh well, I promise. Thanks. Why are you so tall? She smiled. <laughs> I get sore neck. <laughs> I have trick for that, I said. <laughs> I sat my bare arse back down on the freezing plastic chair. <laughs> on the paper towel. So we were eye to eye. I reached out and held her by the shoulders. Is that better, I said. Much better, she said. We both laughed. I looked at the torch. People are going to think I'm really, really afraid of the fucking dark, I said. <laughs> Paul, thank you so much. and so glad all your bits and pieces are exactly as nature intended them. And that is it for this podcast. 10 by 9 live events are up and running for 2023. Check out all our dates on our website, 10by9.com, including some special events, and keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Maybe think about giving the podcast a review or a rating at a podcast app. It's really helpful if you can. And tell as many people as you can about 10 by 9 and the 10 by 9 podcast. Thanks to all the people who make 10 by 9 happen. Chris O'Donoghue, the gorgeous people of the Black Box, the Science Festival people, our wonderful audience and all our storytellers. But especially Barney Gribben, Darcy Young and Paul Brady. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye bye.